If you would, please turn in the Scriptures to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. Now, there'll be a text on the screen, but, um, but I would like for you to look at the text because I'm going to actually begin by reading a little bit before what you'll have on your screen. Uh, so I'd like for you to look at Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 8. I want to remind you of where we were last week. And that'll help uh, set the stage for what we are going to see in our text this morning. So I just remind you uh, what Paul wrote in Philippians 3, beginning in verse 8. He says, Indeed, I count everything as loss. Why? Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead or from the dead. Paul presents here this glorious and exalted picture of some of the benefits and rewards that we receive because we are related to or we know Jesus Christ. And he gives us some glorious theological truths. And I just read those, but just to remind you of that, knowing Jesus... And he declares that as being the supreme value of supreme value. It is of ultimate value. It's surpassing any other thing you can imagine. And so much so that Paul, Paul actually recounts how he has given up everything to gain Christ. Right? I mean, he had so much that he disregarded now in comparison to gaining Christ. And then he talks about being found in Christ and having a righteousness from God. That is, he's made right with God by this righteousness that only comes through faith in Jesus. And that to him was more precious than anything in this life. More precious than his heritage, more, more precious than his family background, more precious than any of his accomplishments, his credentials, his reputation, more precious than his very life. And then he talks about, in verse 10, becoming like Jesus. Experiencing the power of Jesus' resurrection and the fellowship of His suffering. and By these means, being conformed to His death. These have become ultimate goals for Paul. And he saw these as the means by which he would one day be raised from the dead. Not so much that he would have life everlasting, but finally and fully he would be able to see Jesus, this one that he longs to know. You know about someone at a distance, you know that they are precious to you because they have done wondrous things for you, and yet you've never met them. And he will finally get to see Jesus he will be with Jesus and he will be completely conformed to Jesus. So this is exalted theology. And this drives and it governs Paul's life. But he also realizes that he's got to root this high exalted theology in the ground 
of the here and now, of the everyday life, sometimes mundane, sometimes crisis. This everyday life is where this theology is to find its grounding. Where trials and temptations and frustrations are the things that we wrestle with. When we wrestle with sin and we wrestle in the context of a really messed up world, right? All of you have things you're dealing with that don't make sense. And as a Christian, you wonder why we're all dealing with stuff. This theology is rooted and grounded in that stuff and it's to be lived out in the midst of that stuff. And so he's going to help us. From this point forward in this book, he's trying to, to bring this high exalted theology down in, so that we might understand how we are to live the Christian life in light of these things. So he provides here in these few verses we're going to look at, 12 through 16, an analogy. It's a way to understand and help us see why the Christian life feels so difficult and how we can endure through the difficulty. And so I want you to turn your attention to verses 12 through 16. Oh, that by any means I may attain the resurrection from the dead, he writes in verse 11. And then he, and then he brings it home to them. He brings it down to their, where they're at. He brings it down to the ground when he says to them, not that I've already obtained this. Right? He's sharing here a bit of his own frustrations. Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect or already complete, already what I ought to be, but I press on to make it my own. And the it there is not simply resurrection from the dead, but everything that resurrection from the dead is the culmination of. The things that he listed of knowing Jesus and becoming like him. But I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but this one thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And let those who are mature think this way. And if anything, if, if, if in anything that you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Let's pray. Father, we come, we come to your word and we understand that we need your help. We need your help to see what, it, what you're saying here. We need your help to... To hear your voice as, as you speak through your word. So I pray by the power and presence of your Holy Spirit in our midst. Would you bring this word to bear upon our lives? I pray your grace upon us. That we might know we have met with you. We have heard from you. And Lord may we leave here not being the same. Because we have heard from you. So I pray please come bring your word to us. Planted in our hearts, and may it bear fruit, we ask. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Sherry and I had the opportunity um, two times to 
go to the Hershey Gardens. So over in Hershey, uh, beautiful outdoor gardens. Maybe some of you have been there. Uh, I love walking around in beautiful places. Now, we were there in May, which was right at the tail end of the peak of the azaleas and the rhododendron blooming. But, I mean, there were plenty of other things blooming. It was beautiful still, and it was great. And so you walk around. I mean, it's so quiet and peaceful. It's uh, gorgeous. you got pathways, beautiful trees. I mean, just it, it's wonderful. Harmony, fountains. There are benches everywhere where you can just sit and, and meditate, if you will. You can sit and just take it all in. Uh, you can um, you just stroll on these lovely paths. There's birds chirping pleasantly everywhere, squirrels running around, frolicking. It's great. I love it. Lovely paths, leisurely strolls. You really can't stop and smell the flowers, literally. You can do that in this place. Uh, the other time we went was in October, which was after the roses, but it was still beautiful. So I mean, one of these days we're going we're gonna to get there when, when things are as they, you know, in their peak and beautiful. But even with that, it's a wonderful place to be. And we would walk around and just, I mean, nothing was pressing. There was no time constraints. And we would um, think about, you know, what are some ideas we could bring back home in terms of what we could do in the backyard. I mean, it's just a wonderful, wonderful time. This is how I want to see the Christian life. This is what I want the Christian life to be. This is what many of you think the Christian life ought to be. <laughs> a leisurely stroll through the garden. Just enjoying everything, taking it all in. So when Jesus talks about having peace that passes all understanding, you're envisioning Ah, yes, this lovely, leisurely stroll through the garden. Without any troubles, without any worries, without all the stuff I have to deal with, that's what the Christian life ought to be. So if the Christian life isn't that, there's something wrong. Maybe with me, maybe with this idea of the Christian life. But what Paul is saying to us here he is presenting to us a realistic picture of what the Christian life actually is in the here and now. Rather than a leisurely stroll through a beautiful garden, he describes it as a long-distance race full of exertion and effort. And it's not necessarily for people who love to run, right? It is a long-distance race that you are to run with all this exertion and effort until you finally cross the finish line, which apparently isn't until Jesus comes back, which is the time in which we will then be physically raised from the dead. And it is at that point that we will enjoy the fruition and the fulfillment of all this glorious theology that Paul has just pronounced to us in verses 8 through 11. I was a long-distance runner in high school. Yes, I was. Don't laugh. I was a long-distance runner in high school. I, I, I enjoyed running, but even enjoying running, running was hard work. I mean, in order to run the two-mile race, we would run six miles in practice. And we would do that a couple times a week. And so those of you who ran competitively or run competitively, you understand it takes effort and exertion. It's hard work. 
This is not a very encouraging description of the Christian life. But it's the realistic description of the Christian life. And Paul doesn't just say, it's hard, sorry. But he actually here provides for us the ways in which we can run this race. He tells us how to run it. And it's encouraging the things that he says. So let's look at those. There are three things I'm going to point to here. Um, We are to run knowing that the race begins and ends with grace. We, We need to run without distractions. That is, not looking behind us, right? And we run also without giving up ground. And then the third thing we'll focus on is we need to focus, as we run, we need to focus on the prize, the actual end, the actual thing that we receive. So first, let's think together about knowing that the race begins and ends with grace. Now, where do I get the idea of race here? Did you see it anywhere in the text? It's actually in the word press on. The word press on Uh, in the original language, means to run after, to chase, to pursue, to run swiftly to reach the goal. And so it's the idea of a race, and we see that that imagery elsewhere in Scripture. Run the race, run the race. And so Paul declares here that he has obtained, that he has not obtained resurrection and the fullness of the salvation benefits that he describes in 8 through 11. So what he's doing in this life is he's pressing on. He is running after them. He is pursuing them. He is in a race. But it's a race that he wasn't entered into. It wasn't a race that he said, oh, I want to run the race. It wasn't a race that he woke up one day and said, you know what? I need to be in that race. It was a race that began with grace. It's a race in which he was entered into. There are two places in this text that Paul emphasizes this point. The first is there at the end of verse 12, where he says, because, see, I make it my own, I'm running the race. Why? Why do I do this? It's because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Paul's conversion, we read about it in Acts chapter 9, and his his theology or the things he talks about in terms of what salvation looks like uh, with reference to this race of the Christian life, it's not something that we simply decide to do. When he's on the road to Damascus, he is not pursuing Jesus. He is not thinking to himself, maybe I need to reconsider my life. Maybe I need to change my views and maybe there is something to this Jesus. Maybe I should choose Jesus. Maybe I should follow Christ. That was not his mindset on the way to Damascus. He was going to Damascus in order to capture those who were professing to be Christians and bring them to jail in Jerusalem. He wasn't pursuing Christ. He was pursuing Christ's people. To punish them. 
wasn't looking for Christ. He wasn't running after Christ. He wasn't in some kind of race. I'm going after Christ. No. Christ Jesus came, said Paul. And Paul's life was changed from that point on. It was a work of God that came after Paul. And that's Paul's point. You remember chapter 1 and verse 6. His point there is he who began this work. It's not I began this work because one day I believed in Jesus. Or one day I decided to be a Christian. Or one day I decided to go to church. One day I decided to be good. No. God began a work in me. And now I'm His. He has made me His own. And because He has made me His own. Paul joyfully goes after him in order to make him his own. As Dennis Johnson puts it this way in his commentary on this passage, rather than God's grace being a sedative for our Christian work, where it doesn't matter what we do, it's a sedative, I could just relax now. No, rather than it being a sedative, it's actually a stimulant that motivates and fuels us to press on because we are motivated by love and by overwhelmed gratitude with a driving desire to know and pursue this glorious person that we are now empowered to run after. We are now enabled by Him to persevere in the faith pursuing Him and, the, and the, the blessings and the benefits that He gives to us by His grace. So grace that began us in this race is also the grace that will make it certain that we finish the race. A second place we see this grace starting the race, that is God coming and making Paul be part of this race, we see it in verse 14. It has to do with the upward call. The upward call. The race begins with grace. It will end with grace. He tells us how to run. We are to run without... Uh, I'm sorry. We, are to, we see here this notion of this grace that is given through this upward call of Christ Jesus. The upward call. So it is God who says to Paul, Paul, why do you persecute me? Paul, I want you to be my servant. And just like when God says, let there be light, when God says something, when He calls something into existence, it exists. It comes into existence. There is power in His call. And when He effectively calls a person, that person will believe. This call, and this beginning of the race, is a result of God's grace. And this grace will indeed enable us to finish the race. This grace is with us throughout the race. It is God's grace. 
It's a good thing that it is, because if it were left to us, if it were up to us, if it depended upon us, some of you right now are on the verge of giving up because you're relying and depending upon yourself. He is saying to us here, it is God's grace that got me into the race. It is God's grace that will enable me to run during the race. It is God's grace that will bring me to the finish. That's an encouraging thing. But Paul gives us more help here. So not only do we run knowing that race begins and ends the grace and with grace, but he tells us how to run. How we're to run in the middle of all of this. How we are to run without distractions and in a way that doesn't give up ground. I want you to look at verse 13. Without distractions. Look what he says here. One thing I do. I forget what lies behind. Forget what lies behind. What in the world does Paul mean? Well, as a runner in a race, one of the worst things that I could do when I ran was to look back and see where everybody was. There's a couple reasons for that. One, running's a mind game. When you're running competitively, it's really a mind game, especially distance. It's a mind game. The best, the best position to be in is like right behind the guy, the guy that you're gonna you're gonna beat, to be right behind him, breathing heavily. That messes with him. That messed with me. It's like it's like, how fast do I have to run? And I start running faster and, and I wear myself out. But it's a mental game. It's a big mental game. But yes, running, running is mental. I mean, it is. It's about mind games. I either will stress out that the nearest runner will catch me, uh, that he'll close the gap, so I'll stress and anxiety will contribute to my not running very well, or I'll look back and they're so far back, I've got this in the bag. I'll just relax. I'll be like the rabbit and take a nap. And so it's dangerous, isn't it, to look back? Oh, the other part about looking back, it's dangerous also because I've seen people look back and they trip over their own feet because you have to turn your body a little bit. It just throws you off. And then you're out of the race. So don't look back, Paul says. I don't look back. Well, what is he talking about? Look back at what? Well, Paul has just listed a number of qualifications. So in verses 4 through, uh, through 6, he listed a number of his credentials, right? His, his own self-righteousness. The good things that he had done. And, and I told you last week, and it's true this week too. I don't care how righteous you believe you are or how good you think you are or what a good person you happen to be. You're not as good as Paul. And Paul says, all of that stuff, remember what I said last week? He called it rubbish. What's that word really mean? It's a big old pile of stink. Yes, dumb. And so, and so he, he recognized that's all it's worth. 
all the good stuff I do and all the good stuff I present, and I'm going to stand before God one day and present all my good stuff, and He's going to say, it stinks. Depart from me. I never knew you. Why? Because it's not enough. It's never enough. The righteousness of Scripture that God calls us to is beyond our capacity as sinful people to do. Why? Because you're sinful. And so Paul, he could look back, he's getting tired. You know, you look back and you think, okay, well, I've run far enough. Look, I've done all these marvelous things. Maybe, maybe it's enough. Maybe I'll just rest on my laurels. I'll just kind of take it easy. And Paul could be talking about these credentials that, you know, he could, he could you know, present that to God as, as his own righteousness. And, and maybe he's thinking about his Christian life now. Look at all the things that Paul's done. Look at the ways he's been committed to Jesus. Look at the ways in which he's served the church. Planted all these churches. He's got about, he's suffered in the name of Christ. He's suffering now in jail. He's an apostle for heaven's sake. You know, I just rest on those things. But you notice Paul's demeanor. He's not looking behind him. He's not looking at the things that he has done that might be to his credit. He's also not looking to the things that he has done that demonstrate his failures. That demonstrate uh, the fact that he is not good enough. Because you and I sometimes can look back and be overwhelmed by our sinful past. The author of Hebrews states it this way. Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. There's a sense in which our sin and failure may be constant reminders to us that we don't deserve Jesus and His blessings. Maybe His salvation isn't enough for someone like me. So we look back, we trip over our sins and our failures, and we slow down, maybe even stop running, with the sense that we don't deserve to be in the race to begin with. We are incapable to complete it. But again, it's forgetting that the race began with grace to begin with, right? But Paul also says in verse 16, Note there, he says, hold true to what we have attained. So we haven't attained everything. We haven't obtained this, this perfection. But hold true to what you have attained. Hold true to the level of maturity that you have gained to this point. And wherever we are in the race, whether we are near the beginning or maybe in the middle of the race or close to the end of the race, don't give up the ground that you've gained. Hold true. That word means to stand firm, to hold the line to what we have obtained, the ground that we have gained. So don't give up ground. Don't regress. Don't go backwards. Don't only not stop, but don't go backwards. And he describes this in verse 13 as straining forward. You see that phrase? Straining forward to what lies ahead. 
It means to stretch out toward, to exert oneself to the uttermost. It's a picture of a runner coming up to the finish line. You see the sprinters in the Olympics? What do they do? I mean, they every muscle is moving and, and they're powerful runners and they get to the finish line and they just push themselves forward as far as they can. Sometimes that makes the difference between first, second, and third. Sometimes between first and eighth. But straining forward, that's the picture that's presented here. Well, what helps us to strain forward? Well, the third thing that I believe we can take from this text is to keep your focus on the prize, to keep your focus on the reward, to keep your focus on the finish line, to look at the tape and run for it. Verse 14, Paul says, I press on, that is, I run and I pursue. And I run toward the goal of that upward call. That effective call, it puts us in the race. The race is our lifetime of appropriating the salvation that God has given to us. So we know that we are made right with God because we trust in Jesus. And we get this righteousness from God. Look at verse 9 of chapter 3. There's a righteousness from God. It's not a righteousness from myself. There's a righteousness from God which depends upon faith. So I trust in Christ and I get the righteousness from God. That's what makes me right with God. But our life is a conformity to the image of Christ. It is a conformity to becoming like Jesus. We call that sanctification. We're justified by faith. We are sanctified. The sanctification idea or this becoming more like Jesus, that's the running of the race. And we run to the end where we have final conformity in which the physical resurrection then transforms us finally into that, that last stage, which is glorification, where we are just like Jesus. Romans 8.30 talks about that, where we, are, where, where we walk through this, this process of, of salvation to the end that we become like Jesus and we're with Him forever. And so really what we're saying here, what Paul is saying here, is that the prize is Christ Himself. This is what Paul wants. He wants to gain Jesus. He wants to know Christ. And he knows the ultimate way that he will do that is when he finally brings him into his presence. And he is there with him and he's no longer full of sin. <laughs> and he's like Christ. And he's with him forever. That's the prize. The goal. Being with and being fully like our loving Savior. And when we focus on that, we focus on Him, on Christ, and all of His saving benefits, then our hope is fueled. And we are enabled and empowered at the level of our hearts and our affections and our desires and our longings to press toward Jesus, the prize. Hebrew 12, 2, following what we, we read about in verse 1, where it says, run with endurance the race that is set before you. Verse 2 says, looking to who? Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. 
who ran the race for us. This is what is being set up there. The joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. What was the joy that was set before him? The prize of being with his father and the prize of bringing to the father and with him many children, you and I. He endured the cross. He did so in our place. He's run the race. And he is now on the right hand of God. This is Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2. So he's at the finish line. He's at, he is the goal. He is the trophy. He is the prize. And when he is what we want, then we will run the race enduring the difficulty. Pressing on to the prize. So remember to run, knowing that the race begins and ends with grace. Run without distractions, forgetting what is past and not giving up ground that has been gained. And run focused on the prize, which is Christ Jesus and all of His benefits. So I, I ran when I was in high school. I ran when I was in college because I was in ROTC. I ran when I was in the military, in the army for about four and a half years. And off and on since then, I have at times had periods where I would run. And I did this on my own. All those other times I was kind of forced to. So it was helpful to me to force me to do it. But I actually did it on my own some afterwards. And the reason I did so is because I prized getting in shape. Do not laugh, any of you. I prized being more fit than I, than I was at the time. And so it was a conscious choice that I made to run. It was a conscious choice that I made. The benefits, the prize of being in better shape is worth how much it hurts to run. How much I don't really like it because it, I'm forcing my body to do something. My body says, don't force me to do this. But being more fit was worth it. There would be days when I wasn't feeling it, more often than not. There would be days when it would be raining. Days I was just tired. But because I valued the prize, I would still run. It was a choice that I made. The choice to prize Jesus is a similar choice. It's a choice. Uh, yes, God gives us His grace and He gives us His Spirit, but we are called to run, to pursue, to press on towards Jesus. And this requires a choice. Do you prize and pursue Jesus? And if not, why not? This prizing and pursuing Jesus is not magic. It's not some, you know, super Christian spiritual level that you just hadn't quite gotten to. It's not some kind of spiritual gifting that some receive and others don't. It's not some spiritual experience that still eludes you. It is a choice that you make. 
to prize and pursue Christ. It's a conscious choice to know Him, to commune with Him, to seek Him in the Scriptures. What keeps you from this? What? What are you pursuing and striving after? What is it that you desire? What are you longing for? Any of those things. What what are you going after more than Him? Will any of those things give you joy and abundance in life? Paul presses on toward Christ and he calls you and I to do the same. Scripture presents Jesus as the highest prize, the richest reward. In Him and in Him only will you and I ever find everything that we're looking for, all that we're seeking is only found in Him. It's not simple, but it's really that simple. It is really that simple. Run, pursue, press on for Christ. And you will grow and mature as a believer and press on toward the perfection that eludes you but God is working in you. Would you pray with me? Father, we come asking, as always, for your grace to believe what you say in your word. Your grace to see ourselves as we are. Lord, would you help us to see the things that we are longing for and chasing after um, rather than, or that we value more than, Jesus so that we might see clearly that we are going after things that are of lesser value, things that maybe promise us life, but they will not give us life. Maybe promise us satisfaction, but they will not satisfy. Lord, would you help us to see and understand that it is Christ and Christ alone that is the goal, that is the prize, that is the one after whom we run. Lord, help us to see and help us to run. I pray your grace upon us, and we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.